That is in Romans chapter 3, at verse 25. We may begin to take up the reading for the sake of the context at verse 23. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And now the text I want to look at briefly. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. There are two different ways of looking at the death of Christ. More than two, but of all the different views that you may collect concerning the death of Christ and its meaning, there really are just two. There are those who would have us believe that the death of Christ was an example of suffering to the world, or that he was a martyr to a cause. These persons are bound to regard the death of Christ as really a tragedy that he came to do good to mankind but that he was misunderstood misrepresented and so instead of being victorious he suffered martyrdom and death in a good cause now there are many who have looked upon the death of Christ like that and there are plenty of people, educated and uneducated, who still look at the death of Christ as tragedy and as failure and as sorrow, indeed as misery. But that is the very re reverse of the Bible's attitude to the death of Christ. In the eyes of Scripture, Jesus' death is the central fact of all history. That it is the hinge upon which the destiny of men and nations turns. That of all that God ever intended for this world and all that God ever executed in this world, nothing was ever more wonderful or more glorious in its design and accomplishment than the cross of Christ. These two attitudes can be well summarized in the attitude of Peter to Jesus when our Lord said to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and be rejected of the scribes and Pharisees and crucified and the third day rise again and Peter foolishly 
ignorantly turned to the Lord, you remember, and he said, that be far from the Lord. This shall not happen to thee. You see, he regarded the death of Christ as tragedy, as failure, as loss, as misery, as grief. <coughs> and our Lord had to rebuke him and say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, by telling him he had not understood the nature of his death that if he had understood the nature of his death he would never use such expressions as he had just used that indeed he was adopting Satan's attitude to the cross and the world's attitude to the cross thou savorest not the things of God but those things that be of men your theology of the cross says Jesus by a paraphrase is the theology of men not the theology of scripture your understanding of my death as tragedy and as failure is blindness Peter not spiritual illumination get thee behind me take away that foolish attitude to my death now in the passage that I have read and given as a text that is Romans chapter 3 verse 25 and that context we see the true attitude the Bible adopts everywhere towards the cross and it is all summarized in one word and it is simply this one word I look at today it is the word propitiation that's not an easy word because we don't use it frequently in common speech propitiation is not a word that the man in the street understands it is a technical term and there are some people who would resent the use of technical terms in matters of religion but you can't reduce the things of God all the time to ABC you have to have technical words in all sciences and the word of God is the queen of the sciences that God has given to man and it has its own technical vocabulary and the word propitiation is one of the choicest and most important words that God has given to us as a key to interpreting and understanding the death of Jesus Christ for us propitiation in a word we can define it like this it is the turning away from man of the anger of God it is as though the world was standing beneath a waterfall and that waterfall was due to deluge like a cataclysm the whole of mankind because of sin now Jesus is propitiation precisely because he diverted the stream of the wrath by standing himself under it and so protecting the world from it he exposed himself to the wrath in order that we should not be exposed to it he took it into his own breast that we might ourselves be free and scatheless I want therefore this morning 
to look at three points with you, briefly. First, I want to say in what ways Christ did not suffer the wrath of God. Second, I want to say how Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God in his own mind. Third and last, I want to say how Jesus suffered the wrath of God in his body and soul. And in this way, I hope to show you a little, because that's all we can ever hope to do, just to get a glimpse of that little that we are able to arrive at, of what it means that our Savior bore the wrath of God in becoming a propitiation. In order, therefore, to clarify our thinking, I must begin with a negative heading. The ways, I say, in which Christ did not suffer the wrath of God. There are many points of confusion in the minds of men and women about this matter. We must therefore seek a clearer definition of what we mean when we say that Christ died for sin and became the sin bearer and the taker of wrath. Now first, under this heading, Christ did not suffer the wrath of God in such a way that he himself was defiled by the contact he had with sin. Now this is a deep mystery. Jesus not only died for sin, but Jesus was made sin for us. He became the very embodiment of sin. He became sin incarnate, so to speak, using a figure. And you and I would think that therefore it would be proper for us to say that in dying for man and bearing wrath, Christ became sinner. Now that is improper. That is illegitimate use of language. We must never suggest that Jesus Christ became a sinner. He came as close to being a sinner as it was possible for him to do without actually being defiled by sin. He came as close to the sinner's place as conceivable without in the least degree ceasing to be holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. That is a matter of great wonderment in itself. I go on. Christ did not suffer the wrath of God in that he did not suppose that God was angry with him personally. Now you understand what I mean when I say that. There are some persons and they have imagined that Jesus Christ was confused on the cross. That Jesus did not know that God was not angry with him. There are persons who think that when our Lord cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That our Lord was in a turmoil and he could not very well sort out the logic of his own thoughts. And they suppose, these persons I refer to, 
that Jesus imagined that God was angry with him personally on the cross. Now that is a mistake which we must be careful to avoid. Our Lord knew that God was not angry with him as an individual. He knew that the suffering he was undergoing at the hand of God was an official suffering. It was as a public representative of others that it was as a man set forth to stand for other men that our Lord Jesus Christ was suffering. That is the point which we must see clearly in our Lord's mind. Furthermore, Jesus knew that God did not hate him during that period in which God was smiting him and striking him and making his soul an offering for sin. Now you will sometimes hear preachers suggest, if not explicitly state, that Jesus Christ uh, was hated by God on the cross when he bore our sin. The argument goes like this, God is holy, God must needs hate sin, Christ was made sin, and therefore God hated Christ. Now that seems to be a flawless argument, but it is incorrect. And I hope none of us would ever imagine for a moment that God the Father would hate his Son on the cross. That is entire misrepresentation and misunderstanding. God the Father never hated Christ for an instant. And the proof of that is that God only hates those who are justifiably the objects of his hatred. Now his only begotten son, his beloved son, never came into the category of those who deserved hatred. The justice of God, to speak no higher than that, would forbid that God should hate his own son. And the proper way of understanding this matter, therefore, is to say that God loved his son and never more so than during that moment of time or that period of time rather in which he was making his soul an offering for sin. Furthermore, under these negative points we must say that Jesus Christ did not enter into physical death under the wrath of God. Now, that is something of great importance to us to remember. When unbelievers die, they enter into wrath, the wrath of God. They enter into death with the wrath of God upon them and with the sentence of condemnation resting upon them and with their sins imputed to them. But in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, this was not so. The sin that was reckoned to Christ and imputed to Christ on the cross, not his own certainly, but ours, involved him in suffering the penalty. But that penalty of the wrath of God and the condemnation terminated at the time when he entered into physical death. Or to say the same thing another way round, when our Lord entered into physical death, 
he had already undergone spiritual death and he had already exhausted the demands of the wrath of God and of his justice. So that when he entered into death physical, he did not do so as a spirit or a man condemned. <coughs> had he done so, he must needs have paid the further penalty of going to hell which of course our Lord did not do and did not need to do and explicitly tells us he would not do when he told the thief on the cross this day thou shalt be with me in paradise and I want just in a word to point out further as I come to the end of these negative points it was not necessary for Christ to bear the wrath of God for a long duration of time. Now you see how different he is in suffering from the damned. Wicked men who are damned of God, when they enter into eternity, they must suffer for their sins for an infinite period of time. They go on suffering throughout all the eons of eternity but in doing so they can never come to an end of their punishment because the punishment of sin must be infinite sin is a sin against an infinite God and an infinite evil can only be paid for and punished for by the suffering of an infinite duration of punishment but our Lord Jesus Christ was himself an infinite person or a person of infinite value and so he is the great exception to the need for a sinner or a person to whom sin is reckoned to suffer for an infinite period of time what happened in his case was that by suffering for a short duration on the cross because he was God the Son and of infinite value by a short period and duration of suffering he was able not simply to pay some of the penalty for sin but all the penalty for sin he was able to exhaust the claims of God's justice against mankind he was able to swallow all our debts and obligations to divine law and righteousness he was able to render a complete and absolutely perfect satisfaction to God the Father and therefore that was done by a suffering of limited duration. How different that will be from the sufferings of the damned when they leave this world. They must needs suffer eternally because they are finite in value and because their sins will rest upon them forever and never be removed. Now I clarify then in these different respects that Jesus Christ did not suffer the wrath of God in these particular ways in order now positively to prepare the way for my further two headings or brief headings in order to try to show you now in what ways Jesus Christ did bear the wrath of God and you remember our method of understanding and dividing the subject is this first we shall see now that Christ suffered the wrath of God in his mind and then last in his body and in his soul and in all these things 
we see our Lord was made a propitiation. He was standing under wrath. He was exposed to damnation and to the curse and to the malediction and displeasure of God for our sake. So then, Christ suffering in his mind. Now, my friends and brethren, mental suffering is not a myth. It is not a nonsense to talk about suffering in your mind. We know very well that to suffer in the body can be great torment. But let's not forget that to suffer in our minds can also be equally great torment and possibly even greater torment at times than to suffer in the body. It's not only in general hospitals you see people racked with pain, but you see people in mental hospitals also racked with a different type of pain, equally tragic and equally poignant. So it all was with Christ. He not only suffered in the body and in the soul, but he also suffered in the mind. I want to say in what ways this is true. Well, first because of his anticipation. Now, when trouble comes upon sinners, it comes usually without any anticipation. Let us imagine, for the sake of example, to clarify our point, that somebody in this uh, building today has a dear one, and tomorrow they're going to die. God forbid it should be so, but it may be so, but you don't know if it's so. But tomorrow when it happens, according to my illustration, then you will feel the agony of the loss. A husband, a wife, a child, or whoever. The loss will be deep in your spirit. But you don't have that sense of loss today because you do not know that that loved one is going to die. But this is altogether different with our Lord. He had the mental strain of anticipating all his sufferings. Every one of them was known to him in advance. Now we couldn't stand that. And God in his goodness has not exposed us to the sorrow of future events which providence has screened from view. But providence did not screen from view the sufferings of Christ. He knew these sufferings from the Old Testament. We read of some of them today and sang of others of them today in the Psalms 22, 69, Isaiah 52, 53, and many another passage. Our Lord knew these chapters by heart. He sang some of them in the synagogues and in the temple of his day. He knew that they referred all of them to him. And he had the strain, therefore, of mental anguish as he looked steadily for the realization and fulfillment of every one of them. The things concerning me have an end and a fulfillment, he said. That doesn't exhaust this point at all. Christ's mental anguish consisted also in his realizing that he was to be the one who would bear sin. That all the wrath 
of God would be directed at him for our sin. He knew that, he understood that, he had to prepare his mind for that. All the types and sacrifices of the Old Testament, especially the Paschal Lamb, reminded him of the coming wrath which he would bear upon the cross. And that was mental anguish for Christ. The nearer he came to the cross, the more clearly he saw in his human nature what damnation involved. We can see this by reading the Gospels carefully because early in his ministry he refers to his coming death without an overwhelming sense of their imminence. But when he gets close to Gethsemane, he begins to feel the shadow of Calvary falling upon his spirit. Now is my soul sore troubled, he says on one occasion. On another occasion, he has to fall down upon his very face, falling headlong in the garden, sweating drops of blood, under the very prospect of being the sin-bearer and propitiation. So great were his thoughts, a trouble to him. He was not suffering now yet so much in the body as in the mind, and that his mental sufferings would have killed him in the Garden of Gethsemane had God not made already a provision for him and given him special grace in answer to his prayer. And an angel ministered to him, also words of comfort. Add to this the fact that Christ, being so holy, understood the fearful nature of sin. Now this is what no sinner in hell will ever know, because no sinner in hell will ever know the awfulness of sin. Sinners, and we're all sinners, but I mean those who go down into the eternal pits of darkness, even when they're suffering the wrath of God, sinners will not understand how awful sin is to God, because they don't know what it is to be perfectly holy. Christ did. And as he was bearing sin, he was bearing that thing which above all things was most opposed to his own nature as the Holy Son of God. And he understood the demerit of sin and the defilement of sin and the disgusting character of sin in a way that we can never even begin to dwell upon or to understand or to fathom. And that added greatly to his own sufferings in mind. And to that, my dear friends, we must add this further point. But if that was not enough of mental suffering, we must bear in mind that Christ also understood that the one who was going to give the punishment to him upon the cross was none other than his dear Father. Now it's one thing to be punished by Pontius Pilate, who was an outsider to him. It's one thing to be scourged by a Roman governor, who was a godless man. It's one thing to be mocked at by King Herod's soldiers who spat upon him and buffeted him 
and smote him across the face with a reed and plucked off the hair of his beard. That's one thing. These men were outsiders to him. They were no part of his family. But what was so profoundly disturbing to the mind of Christ, let us say, was this, that the one who was going to place the cup of damnation in his hand to drink from was his father, whom he loved, his father whom he had served, and the thought that receiving damnation at his hand, that was the acme, that was the high point of all our Lord's mental anguish, that of all the beings from whose hand he might receive this exquisite physical and spiritual punishment and torment was none other than his father. Now that is not to deny, of course, that he understood that his father did this in love to him and in love to us. He knew all that. He understood why it was happening. He knew it was for our salvation. He looked beyond the cross to the consequences. It was for the joy set before him in that he would have a people in heaven with himself for eternity. All that is true. Let us never forget that it was his own father in whose bosom he had dwelt from eternity who was now mixing the cup for him to drink. And you cannot for a moment suppose that that was anything but profound mental agony for our blessed Savior. Oh, my Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And of course, there is a still further element with this. I close this heading, and the still further element is this. Let us not forget it, that our Lord was bowed down with profound sympathy for those who hated him upon earth. And that was one of the factors that added to his mental sufferings. It's one thing, you know, to suffer at the hands of men to whom you're in, you are indifferent. If you see men treating you badly and you commit your cause to God, then you say, well, God will vindicate me. And I go, I don't care about these persons who are nailing me to the tree. I'm indifferent to them. I'm careless about them. Whatever happens to them, I don't care at all. But our Lord was not in that state of indifference towards his persecutors. It grieved him to the very soul and to the marrow that these persons who were persecuting him were chiefly his fellow countrymen, were chiefly from the Israel of God were the very ones that had the scriptures, were the ones who failed to understand the meaning of the very word that God had given to them through their forefathers, the prophets. And that is how we see him dealing with those who accompanied him to the cross. You remember the women who wept for him and wailed for him and sympathized with him. And our Lord turned to them and he said to them, Ye daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children because of the things that are coming upon you. Our Lord tells us in his great last discourse 
that he saw the punishment which was coming upon his persecutors. He saw those Roman legions encircling Jerusalem in 70 AD, saw them by faith, saw them by his foresight. He knew the terrible persecution which God would pour out upon the Jewish nation in consequence of their having rejected him. And our Lord was not indifferent to their sufferings which were to come. And he bled for them in a sense not literally now I mean but in a sense in his own spirit he grieved for them and his prayer for them you all remember was Father forgive them for they know not what they do and this deep sympathy for his persecutors and haters was no small element in the mental anguish and distress of the blessed son of God but I come third and last now to speak about Christ's suffering wrath as our propitiation in his body and in his soul. In what sense did our Lord suffer the wrath of God in body and in soul? I have tried to show you in what ways he did not suffer the wrath of God. I have tried to make it clear in what sense he suffered in mind. Now finally, in what sense did he suffer the wrath of God as our propitiation in body and in soul? Well, like this. But although God was not angry with him as an individual, yet God treated him as though he were angry with him. And that is the way we must understand the matter. Christ knew this, we ought to know it, but you see, that is the dreadful fact of the matter, glorious and dreadful, depending upon how you interpret and look at these things. It is a great wonder that God the Father was filled with love for his Son, and yet he treated him as though he were not. God the Father was filled with delight in his Son, but he treated him as though he hated him. And that is the exquisite wonder of the Gospel, that the justice of God treated Christ as though he were the greatest sinner who ever lived. And now you would have thought that God the Father would have mitigated and softened some of the blow because we would have done that to our children. If for some reason you had to chastise your own son and beat him with a rod because of some uh, misdemeanor, some uh, crime that he had committed and it was your responsibility to punish him, you would mitigate some of the blow, you would soften the blow, you would remit some of the punishment, you would ease some of your anger, you would lessen the amount of punishment you would give him because he was your son and your heart would bleed for him and you would say, I have smitten him ten times, I cannot give him the twenty that he deserves, he is my son. And you would forgive the rest and you would say, that's enough. Now that's the very thing God did not do and would not do. He would not spare his son. He would not lessen the punishment. He would not mitigate the wrath and the curse and the damnation, not in the slightest degree. The whole weight of the judgment of God and his fierce anger came upon Christ without the slightest remission 
because he was his own only beloved son. And then the consequence of that was that there was removed from Christ in his sufferings on the cross all common grace. Oh friends, we should be thankful for common grace. It is that working of God in the world which prevents this world from becoming a hell on earth. Common grace leaves men decent, even if they're not godly. Common grace makes men respectful one towards another and even towards the church and even towards God, even though they don't really love him. A wonderful thing, common grace, restraining the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. But I want to point out to you that part of the sufferings of Christ involved the removing from him in his death of common grace. How? Jesus said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. God removed from him those restraining influences which would have kept the devil at bay. The devil is usually kept at a distance from godly men. That is God's way with them in this world. In the world to come, the devils will have full power over godless men. They will be tormented by devils. They will do God's work in justice. They will be the torturers of wicked men in hell. That is the destiny of those who hate Christ and go into the pits of darkness. On the cross, Christ had something of that. The devils were allowed to cluster around him, to fill his mind with doubts about who he was, about what God was doing, to bring his mind into confusion. The devils also had the power to instigate unspeakable hatred and bitterness against Christ so that the persecutors under the cross wagged their hands and their fingers and they said, aha, aha, he saved others, he can't save himself and all that terrible stream of blasphemy which those around the cross uttered. It was the consequence of the removal of common grace this is how we must account for Peter's denials. There was something in the air that night, and Peter was afraid, all his courage drained out of him. There was something in the air, devils came and filled the heart of Judas Iscariot, so as to betray his master. Only for a short time was his mind deluded into thinking that his master ought to be treated in that way. Within a matter of hours he saw the stupidity of what he'd done and he threw this blood money back into the temple and hanged himself in terrible remorse. There was something in the air that night. The darkness came down. It was physical for a time. And all this was part of the removal of common grace from the Son of God. All the sensible comforts of life vanished for a time. Let me go on and say that he suffered in every part of his body. We know this from the description given to us in the Gospels. There was scarcely a part of his body that was not lacerated and wounded with blood. As they looked at him, they cried, Behold the man! His visage, his face was so marred, said Isaiah, more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. What with the crown of thorns upon his head 
and blood coming down from his face what with the men that ripped up his beard and spat in his face and blood coming down from his face what with his hands and feet torn with nails what with men skirting his back he said himself in Psalm 22 thou hast brought me to the dust of death my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth I may count all my bones they do upon me look and stare and all this was indicating the torment of every part of his body he was made a holocaust he was made a whole burnt offering every bit of Christ from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot was the object of the wrath and curse of God and as he was made sin his body was a total victim and we must not forget that all of this was nothing compared to that which was the cream if you like of all his sufferings the quintessence of all his sufferings and that was spiritual death and judicial abandonment by God himself during the hours from 12 till 3 of the afternoon during that time he cried out my God my God why hast thou forsaken me and the reason for that cry was because there occurred a severance between God the Father and Christ's human nature the telephone line was broken if you like for the one and only time in Christ's eternal existence before that our Lord had always known the comforting assurance of the love of God in his heart just as believers know that so he knew that there was the witness of the Holy Spirit with his spirit human that he was the son of God not simply a son of God but the son of God if we as Christians had that assurance and that peace he had it a fortiori he had it vastly more but on the cross as sin was imputed to him and he suffered damnation for us as the propitiation there was a total severance of all comfort from Christ he experienced in his own heart and mind such feelings as men will only experience when they are in hell itself such awesome fear and darkness fell upon him such awful sense of wrath and desolation that even in eternity we shall never understand that text my God my God why hast thou forsaken me but that judicial abandonment was the quintessence it was the very lowest point of all that was involved for Christ in being a propitiation in his blood for sinners so I close with these observations friends the effect of Christ's sufferings on believers are wonderful beyond all conception 
there occurred what I can only call a resolution within the attributes of God. Perhaps you know that in great music, before you come to the final chord, the composer sets two notes which jar one against another. The intention of that is to tell the listener that the music is not yet finished. Something has further to be stated in order to bring a resolution. Well, there were two attributes in God which from all eternity, since man, that is to say, since man sinned, I mean, from all of time, since Adam's day, I mean, there had been this conflict between two attributes in God. The justice of God demanded the punishment of sin. The mercy and love of God requested the forgiveness of sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, these two attributes, Father, and he must receive, because his death is the down payment to God of the whole inheritance which his people will receive. They don't receive salvation merely, merely as a matter of grace and nothing more. Of course, they do receive it as grace from God ultimately, but grace which has also accompanying with it the payment of a purchase price so that the inheritance of glory and immortality and eternal life are due to Christ and to his people because he was made, says Paul, a propitiation through faith in his blood. Oh, what cause for worship believers have. Oh, what cause for comfort believers have. Let us love this Jesus. Let us love this Savior with an unspeakable condescension, even to the death of the cross. Let us serve him. Let us give ourselves to him. Let us enthrone him, King of kings, Lord of lords, in our own hearts and homes, all the days we live, and unto eternity. Amen. <laughs>